what a good morning already. Anybody else get stumped by the time change uh, this morning? Nobody. No. We were expecting that maybe at about 10 o'clock, like we'd have people rolling in and being like, what? But it didn't happen this morning. Anybody noticed how beautiful the sunrise was this morning? That was, we see who slept in and who didn't. That's fantastic. Well, it's already been a blessing to uh, worship with you this morning and uh, get a chance to see from God's Word and His uh, kindness to us through His promises. And as you've probably guessed, that's our uh, topic here uh, this morning is talking about promises. And we're going to be diving into Galatians. If you haven't noticed, we've been in this series, or if you haven't been around, we've been just working chapter by chapter uh, through the book of Galatians. And this morning, we're going to be in Galatians 3, uh, 15. And talking about promise keepers, I was thinking back to my junior high years, I ended up uh, going at one point with my dad to one of those Promise Keeper events at a huge stadium called Soldier Field where the Bears play. This was uh, many years back. I don't know if anybody else here went to one of those Promise Keeper events, uh, but they were fantastic. I just remember being in that packed room with thousands of men just worshiping God. It literally put chills on my, my back, just the, being in that, the presence of, of a unified worship of Almighty God. But as I was thinking about that conference, the idea behind it was they had seven different promises that they were challenging people uh, to, to live by. And I was thinking, I was like, man, I was there. I was all fired up about it. I was committed to living those promises. But now, many years later, you know how many of the promises I remember? Zero. Zero promise. You guys are like, nice pastor, right? <laughs> uh, but, but, but the truth is, the truth is, inherently, we're not real great at being promise keepers. We're not real great, great at being, maybe the, the better title for the conference, if we hold one here, is promise breakers. Because the truth is, when I, when I study God's word, when I work my way through the Old Testament, you start seeing story after story of one failed promise after another, one failed promise. But the encouraging thing, you're like, well, this is, a, this is an uplifter. But the encouraging thing is, the one thing that's constant, although we're not, is there is a promise keeper who keeps his promises. If it, the, the longer you live, the more you see that to be true in your own life, that, man, God is consistent. The things that he says he will do in our lives, he does. It's a beautiful thing. And Paul's pointing in our text this morning. He's making the case. Last week, he, he, he made the argument just saying, you know what? The, the thing that saved Abraham all the way back thousands of years, the same thing that saves us, and he's still expounding on that today, that we're still clinging thousands of years later to that same promise keeper. My question, the, the so what, if you will, my question for us this morning is, what promises are you clinging to? What promises, whose promises are you clinging to? Are you clinging to promises of doing things in your own strength and by pulling up your own bootstraps? Are you clinging to promises of, of men that have a tendency to fail in their promises? Whose promises are you clinging to? Let me pray before we dive in. God, we thank you so much this morning for this text. And even though I'll admit it's, it's a tough one this week, that it's challenging to work through, we're asking that you'd speak through us, through it, that you would use this, uh, your word, to proclaim truth, to unveil eyes maybe that haven't really grasped who the promise keeper that we should be clinging to is. I pray that I'd be small, you'd be great, that your word would just unveil your 
awesome, great character that's consistent through the ages. God, we pray that in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you'll turn with me, though, to Galatians 3, we're in uh, verse 15, and the nice thing is, if you don't have a Bible, you have one in the chair in front of you, and even to further that, if you don't own a Bible, take the one from the chair in front of you. How's that sound? You even get a free gift today. And so uh, the, the text that we're going to be working through, whether you're on your uh, phone or looking at a Bible, we're going to be talking through this section starting with verse 15, and we're first he's pointing out in our text, Paul's anticipating this argument from the uh, Judaizers that we've talked about before, this argument that, you know, the, the, this whole believing and trusting in God by faith was just a temporary thing until the law arrived. But, but what Paul's going to point out in our text is that, you, you know what, the, even though the laws arrived, we're still clinging to the same original promises. The original promise still stands. Take a look at verse 15. It says this, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, after this promise to Abraham, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Let's pause there. That's a, a lot to chew on, right? Anybody else like, man, maybe I need to read that a couple times. Well, I'm going to try as best as I can to be a tour guide and try to unpack that. But one of the important things, even in before diving into this text, text is a little bit of background. A little bit of background is, first, by definition, what is a covenant? A covenant, by definition, is traditionally a binding agreement between two parties where both parties are under obligation. So a binding agreement between two parties, it's something that's common in our, our culture all the time. We see them all over the place. The interesting thing is that you'll see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that one of the ways that God has chosen to relate to us, his people, his creation, is through covenants. Through covenants. The Old Testament really has two primary covenants that you're going to see at work, and we see both of them mentioned in our text. Are you tracking with me so far what a covenant is? Two main covenants in the Old Testament. One is a promise covenant. Two is a law covenant. The promise covenant, which started with Abraham, was a covenant that was based on the promise or. The promise or. The one that was making the promise. It was only belief was needed. So that was with Abraham. Only belief was needed. The law covenant, who came through Moses, was based on a promise e promise e meeting a demand. Does that make difference? Does that make sense between those two differences? Promisor, God's God's carrying the weight of it. Promise e with the law, we get to carry the weight of the obligation. So there's two dip, different types of covenants. One's depending on God's faithfulness, the other on man's faithfulness. That's the two options. Paul makes the case here in the text or you see the makes the case that the thou shalt in the in the in the 10 commandments doesn't change the i will 
with what was promised to Abraham. The thou shalt doesn't change the I will. Does that make sense? That it doesn't, it, it does, one doesn't void the other. Let's look, take a look at verse 15 with his argument. It says this, to, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. That's true in our culture today, right? How many of you are maybe under a, a house agreement with a purchase or maybe even a rental agreement or purchased a car that you, that you owe money on? There's an agreement that's a contract that can't be changed. Now, granted, in our system, they've got, we've introduced lawyers into the mix, so there's always room for change. But, uh, but the idea of an initial covenant in that culture was saying, no, no, this was a binding agreement. Maybe one of you have been sucked into a binding agreement that you're like, Oh man, I wish I could back out of that. I remember getting first out of uh, college, my first job, I was working in human resources. And what does every college graduate do once they get their first job is go buy a new car. Maybe not a new car, but a cool car. So that was my, my first uh, purchase coming out of college was saying, uh, you know what? I've got this job, I have this paycheck, and I'm going to make payments on this car. I've since moved from that. Not a good idea. I remember after maybe five months in, you're feeling the weight of this ongoing payment. And you're like, man, three years is a really long time. Man, with a house, 30 years is a really long time. Anybody feel that weight? There's this idea of covenants, amens. If there's ever an amen moment... This last week, we got a new uh, printer in the church office, and it came with this contract, and I felt like I was signing my life away for this printer. I was like, what in the world are, are, am I committing to? And the, the, these contracts, is still, he's saying, he's saying in the text, he's saying, man, if a human man-made contract is binding, how much more is one that's made by God? How much more is one that's made by God? In verse 16, he points to the promises that God made to Abraham saying, you know, what? I'm going to bless you. I'm going to do things, amazing things through you and for you. These promises that God made to Abraham that we're still clinging to to this day. Love it in uh, Genesis 15. You can see an account of the initial promises that God made to Abraham. And he took those promises really seriously. In, the, in, in that time period, in that time period, a, a covenant, anybody fascinated by kind of how things used to work versus how things currently work? Well, this is how things used to work. In that time, a covenant, a deal was sealed, if you will, by making a covenant where two, this is kind of a gruesome one, but they'd take a, they'd take a, a number of animals, they would cut these animals in half, which is kind of gruesome, they would place the, two, the animals, a number of them, creating two different sides with a center path down the middle of them. And then the two people going into a covenant, making a promise together, would walk in braced arms through the like carcasses on either side and saying, virtually saying, may this happen to me if I don't keep that promise. Pretty intense, right? Can you imagine if at the, the local Honda dealer, they're like, oh... <laughs> So, so uh, Mr. Stevenson, I see you're interested in that odyssey. Uh, and so, you know what? My assistant, Deborah, she's uh, cutting up the animal out back, and uh, we're going to just go walk the line together. Can you imagine? Like, things, things have definitely changed with the, the covenants, the promises that are, that are made today look very different, but still none the, nonetheless binding. 
And what we'll see, and what you would see, we don't have time to unpack it fully, but in Genesis 15, God said, the promise that I'm making to you as a, as, as a talking to Abraham, I'm taking them so seriously, you set the stage for that covenant of that time. You got the animals on both sides. And then the amazing thing, as you study this text, is God, in that covenant promise, he walks the line alone. He walks the line alone. There's not two of them walking to make this agreement. It's God, in essence, saying, if I don't keep, he he was the creator of the covenant and the, the keeper of the covenant. He's saying, if I don't keep my promises, may this, what's happened to these animals, happen to me. That's pretty serious, right? Do you think, anybody here think that maybe God might actually keep that covenant? Do you think he might keep that promise? The creator God, the creator of the universe makes that covenant with himself, by himself, for himself, for, like, do do you think that he's not going to keep that promise that he's made? That's the covenant. That's what's happening. That's what, it, that's what Paul is pointing to. He's saying, and it's awesome in, in uh, uh, Genesis 15, if you have time in your devotions this week, to, to unpack and to see that God set the terms of the covenant and was going to meet the obligations. But he points to the text that everything from that covenant was all pointing towards Christ. In verse 16, Paul points out even the use of the word offspring, which can also be translated seed, was singular. It wasn't talking about offsprings, he's saying, or seeds. He's saying this covenant was solely through one, through Jesus Christ. He was the the source of the covenant. And so his argument, the logic that he's saying is that, uh, that if a man's covenant can't be broken, how much less a covenant God may with himself be annulled or modified even after 430 years. It's unchangeable regardless of time. Laws that come later don't void the prior permanent law. He then in the last section there just points to inheritance, just kind of making a logical argument like inheritance isn't something that's earned. It's, a, it's, it's something that's made. It's a, it's a promise that's, that's made to them. So all that to make the case that the original promise, and this is where we have to wrestle with, who, who are, whose promises are we trusting in? The original promise is still the same. It still stands. What came afterwards, the law, didn't negate that original promise. Take a look in verse 19. The reason for the law then. Why then, verse 19 says this, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Let's pause there. The first question, verse 19, what does he start by? What does he ask? Why the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come. It was added. Transgressions, this idea of God wanted us to to point out our transgressions our shortcomings, our failings. The law clues people in to how messed up the world is 
Otherwise, everything just seems fine. Have you noticed that with the world around us? They're like, people are just going along. They, they, they assume everything's just fine. The law was the diagnosis. Paul says in Romans 7:7, 7, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. If it hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't have even known what sin was. That wouldn't have made sense to me. Have you guys noticed in our, our culture, a lot of times people even see us, if, you're a, if you've embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and call yourself a Christ follower, people even see you as the law, right? Anybody else have that where see, that you've kind of put your stake in the ground, people know that you're a follower of Christ, they're around you, and they slip out a curse word, and they're like, oh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Like, you're the awareness of the law. Anybody else have ever had that drink? Oh, I'm just having one drink. I'm not getting drunk. Like people feel the need to, to correct themselves in front of you because they see you as a... I, I have that all the time with a, as a pastor. I'm just like, just take it easy. I'm a, I'm a pastor. I'm not the judge. You know, like there's someone else playing judge and you're guilty. But uh, <laughs> the point being is, is, is saying that there's a reason that the law was there. We've described it a few times in this series as a, like an MRI machine. It, it brings clarity to the, to the sickness, but it's not meant to be the healer. And that's what he says there. He says it doesn't give life. If it had been a means to, to give life, then, then it would have been opposed. It would have been an alternate way to God, but that's not what it was. It had a role. In verse 19 through 20, it's not fully explained, uh, but the law was given by God to Moses through the angels. Uh, a tricky text to work through. It's also mentioned in Acts 7.53 and Hebrews 2.2, this idea. But Moses' angels, it's not, it's not saying something bad about them. They're great, but it's, they're described here as mediators. Mediators, the idea of a mediator is that they're only necessary when there's two parties involved. A mediator is only necessary when you're mediating between two different parties. As we already saw in this covenant, how many people are involved in God's promise? One. There's one God. Just one God. One person carrying the, the weight of the entire covenant. And so he's pointing that out. But, but he asks, is it then contrary? Is the law contrary? No way. Only if it provided an alternate means to be saved, which it didn't. It had a specific role. What does it say in verse 22? What is, that, uh, what is that role? Verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. That's a crazy thought. Thinking of, uh, of sin imprisoning, like the idea we've talked about it a number of times here. Every single one of us guilty as charged, imprisoned by this. There's, it's a box. You think of a, a box around you. You can't get out. You can't nudge this way. You can't nudge this way. You're trapped. It's played that, that role as imprisoning. Why? So that, what does it say? The promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So that you can't experience the freedom of Christ until you realize that you're, that you're trapped. You can't be set free if you're not imprisoned, right? And so it played a role. It expounds in verse 23 on further on what the role of the law is. We see it as the role of a tutor. Take a look in verse 23. It says, Now before faith came, it expounds this, this truth, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, this description now, the law was our guardian until Christ came. 
in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Let's pause there and try to unpack that a little bit. So Paul reiterates, he starts by reiterating that we're under the captivity, under the law, we're trapped. But then he expounds and he describes the law as this, the word guardian, which uh, the Greek word for that is a pedagogue. That makes you sound more intelligent if you use the Greek word for something. So the Greek word pedagogue is, is defined as a tutor. Defined as a tutor. A tutor wasn't like, a, like Sylvan learning. It wasn't like an after-school program in that time. It was commonplace for, for in Roman and Greek culture to have every uh, family that could afford this would have a paid, trusted slave that acted as a tutor that was responsible for the helping with the upbringing of the male child. Does that make sense? So in this culture that he's writing to, he's saying the law used to be like a guardian or a tutor in that time. A guardian was there. They were known. They, they helped the person to get, uh, to get the child to get to school, to complete their studies, help them in adopting the family values. They were very actively involved in shaping what the child would become before they got to adolescence. But the idea of a tutor was that it was only for a certain time period. It was that there was a time period that the tutor was no longer needed. In fact, it was a great day of deliverance when a boy finally gained freedom from their tutor and moved into adulthood. Finally. Like they're, they're known to be pretty strict disciplinarians. So it kind of is like, finally, I've been set free from this tutor. I'm no longer... It, it, it's like high schoolers getting their driver's license. Finally. like I, I get to go do my, my own thing. It was, it was something that was celebrated and looked forward to. So they might still stay in relationship with the tutor, but it no longer, they no longer had authority to, over them. They no longer had authority over them. They might, the, the, hopefully, the principles taught would have taken root in that, that child's life, so they adopted them, and it became part of who they are. And I think this is a beautiful picture of the role of the law. It has trained the conscience, but it no longer has authority over it. It's used to teach us the ways of the Father, but it's no longer the guiding principle. Take a look at this bike. You guys have probably wondered why this was here. This was not uh, Ride Your Bike to Church Day. Uh, but but this, this was mine. In fact, I wrote it here this morning. Um, uh, so actually, Sienna's. Uh, I shouldn't lie in church. Uh, but one of the things that you notice there is what's on the back there. Do you remember those days? The training wheels. Thank the Lord for training wheels, right? How many, anybody else get thrown onto a bike without training wheels and said, just figure it out? Like, some of you had those parents. And, uh, but, but for, for those of you that had parents that loved you, no, just kidding. Uh, the, the, the training wheels was a key part of learning how to ride bikes. Like, our, my, our all, th- well, we're two out of three now that have learned, obviously. Uh, but, uh, but it's, it's a huge piece. It gives, it's like the guardrails. And what, happens finally the hope of after the training wheels come off is that you're able to keep going without the help that that now it's become just natural to you it's become who you are just like I I can ride this like it's it's fun now to see uh, Alexa and Chase now they're they're experts on bikes you know like training wheels that's long since forgotten they're living the freedom because the because the training wheels have been taken off 
That same picture is, is here with the law. Is some of us can live as if the law is still this, this, this staunch thing that's supposed to rule over us. But no, it's something that's supposed to be adopted where you, don't, you no longer think about it. Because why? Because your identity has changed. What does it say there? But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. It's changed. It's changed drastically. No longer under the guardian, but sons of God. It's who we are. It's naturally who we've become. But what does that look like? What, how, do you, how do you live in that new identity under this promise? Take a look at t- verse 27, what it looks like to living in the promise. It says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's a lot in that one verse. I want to just take a second to unpack this because I think it tells us a lot about what this, 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 uh, this, this, this freedom of having the training wheels off, what that looks like. Baptism here is not referring to the physical act of water baptism, but immersion into the life of Christ. Immersion into the life of Christ. Remember that he already had pointed to this in the previous chapter in 2.20. It says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This a beautiful mystery is also seen in 1 Corinthians 6.17. It says, but he who has joined to the Lord, and this is crazy to think, He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Becomes one spirit with him. That's a mystery of walking with Christ that, let's be be honest, we haven't fully realized that, and that hasn't really sunk in fully. But I'll tell you what, the idea of that is intriguing, isn't it? I'm becoming one with Christ. Becoming one where where he's got full reign in and through me. Becoming one in spirit with him. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of the Christian life. It's not something that we've necessarily fully realized, but it's a, but it's a mystery that I want to experience. I want to taste more of that on a day-to-day basis, not me trying to follow rules, but letting Christ live in and through me. What does it describe there? It says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, I love this picture, have put on Christ. You think of that. Think of the, that term, put on Christ. You think of a, on a really cold day, putting on a nice warm sweater. Wait a second. You don't have that here. Uh, this idea that some people have really cold days and they put on sweaters. And, uh, and this idea of getting dressed with Christ, put it, having, putting him on. Putting him on. My, I've talked about this before, being known for being a, a bit of a cheapskate. My wife and I uh, my wife teased me about this. We have this commitment when, when, we, when we fly, we're determined not to pay for luggage. Like, I hate that idea. Like, I hate the idea of paying for, like, I paid for the flight. Take my luggage. And so, and so amen. There's the amen I've been looking for. But so, we're so determined and committed to this uh, resolution in our life that uh, you guys are going to laugh at me. So, so we do the, the, uh, the allotted carry-on, and they let you have your handbag, which even guys can have, and, they, they, and your carry-on bag. And uh, even we've discovered that the car seat carrier bag holds a lot of stuff. I'm just saying, but we, we do this uh, we do this annual trip typically for Christmas. We go to Vancouver to visit my wife's family, and uh, and so we 
uh, to, to beat this and you got to have all your snow gear. We had this idea one year thinking, well, you know what? To save luggage space, we're just going to load all up wearing our coats and our winter gear, man. And so I remember walking through the, the airport at, uh, at O'Hare, and each of our kids are just like dripping sweat with their big old puff coats on. And uh, But you know what? I'm not paying for that luggage fee. And so... Uh, but th- this idea of them, and they're just, they're just covered with layers of clothes of my cheapskateness, and uh, j- just covered with that is the same picture that br- it came to mind when I thought of this. This idea of putting on Christ, where you just keep on layer after layer, you're clothed in Christ. Clothed in Christ. You don't hear that presented a lot when the, the gospel is being talked about, but that's what the reality of the Christian life is, is that you're putting on more and more of Christ. That's a daily exercise until you're just covered with him, until you're like, man, I can't even hardly recognize that guy anymore. I don't see who's underneath all those layers. I, I, I can hardly even tell that, 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 that Scott anymore. Like, because you're covered, you're clothed with Christ. You can't reduce Jesus to his work on the cross. He has to, he's active and living in us. That's part of the life of a believer, and that's what it's pointing here to the text. Are we experiencing that? So living in the promise. And the last thing is the, the beauty of this idea is that you're not just living in the promise by yourself. You're united with lots of people living with God, living through them as well. Take a look in verse united under the promise. Verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, and that's a key distinction, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. It's an awesome truth there. Let's look at a couple thoughts there. The first thing I found was interesting and a little research I was doing this weekend is one of the things that rabbis in the olden days during this time were known for praying is they would thank God that they weren't born a Gentile, slave, or woman. Thank you, God. Can you imagine if we prayed that prayer today? Thank you, Lord, for not making me a woman. Like, uh, like I'd, be, I'd be in a lot of trouble. And uh, that, that would get me in trouble, this, uh, or a slave. Or the, and so that was the, the, the prayer. And so there's a little bit of a jab here, even in that context. What he's pointing out to, you see in verse 28, you see that they're all one in Christ Jesus. We're all the same positionally before God, all the same before him. A lot of people get confused with verse 28, the second part of it. They misinterpret it to think that there's no distinctions. Like that's not the case. That's not what it's teaching. There's still men and there's still women. You could see how you could go some crazy directions with that line of thinking, right? And you see it in our culture. But the distinction is still there. There's still, when you, when, when you finally bent your knee and embraced Christ, like were you, after you accepted Christ, are you still a, a dude? Are you still a guy? Yes, that's, that's good. Like, uh, like, uh, like a, a woman, were you still a woman when you accepted Christ? Like that doesn't change. That's not what he's saying here. You're not all of a sudden like no, like not a man, not a woman. It's not like he was dissolving those things. He's just saying all of those unique things are brought under the umbrella of the same Lord Jesus Christ. The same Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't trying to dissolve those man and, and woman coming together. Uh, the, like the, this idea, he wasn't, he wasn't negating that. 
So races still remain, economic status remain, gender still remain, but all unified under Christ. All unified under Christ. It's a beautiful thing. the, The idea of the church is supposed to be like, hey, lots of unique people. I look around this room. There's lots of unique people coming together under the umbrella of Jesus Christ. I think of the, the life group that, I, that I'm in. I'm like, the personalities, even in that, like Chad Reiser, like unique, very, di- very different. Like we can, uh, we can celebrate that. He's very different than I am. We, we, we've got Sasha, uh, Sasha's in there, like very different guy. Like there's uh, Kayla is in there, like very different people. God's uh, wired up differently, but all the same positionally, under God Almighty. It's a beautiful thing. That's what God wanted to design the church to be, loving relationships with people completely different than us. It's not possible apart from Christ. You look around in the, the world around us and you wonder like, man, why can't the world get along? Like, why, why is there always war? Why is it, what's up in the Ukraine? Like, what, what's, what's going on? Because sin, when sin's involved, unity isn't an option. Because every man's, when everybody's playing self-God, they're all going every different direction. When you're unified under one guy, under one God, one guy, one God, that's how it's possible. That's what he's pointing out here. He says, he says, he says we're united because we're all Abraham's offspring, singular, one, under the same God, not offsprings or seeds, one, unified under him. The idea is this, that we're all wearing the same Christ. We're all wearing the same clothes. We got the same outfit on, if you will. Can you imagine? Anybody watch the Emmys or the, what's the other one called? Oscars, like, the, like walking down the, the red carpet. And the, what's the first question they ask the, the ladies? Well, who are you wearing? Well, this is Wang. Or this is, uh, you, you fill in the blanks, Versace. This is Armani. Like I'm still waiting for that person to come down the, the, the end of the thing and just be like, what are you wearing? Jesus Christ, like, uh, like, that would be awesome. That, that's, the, that's the picture here. That's the picture of just like we're all wearing the same thing. We're all wearing the same thing. We've got, we've got the same clothes on, if you will. We're all clothed in Christ. And you're like, man, I don't even recognize that group. They're all wearing the same outfit. Like, it's crazy. Like, that's the picture that he's pointing, unified. You are Abraham's offspring, singular. And then what does it say? Heirs according to a promise. Heirs according to a promise. What an awesome truth that that promise, that the promise keeper, the one promise keeper, made thousands of years ago, we're still heirs, heirs meaning that that's coming for us, under that same promise. It's a cool thing to think that you're co-heirs with Christ. The same things that he is experiencing now in heaven is something that we're clinging to, we're looking forward to. So as we're walking, as we're doing life, what are we clinging to? What promises? We're clinging to that, that there's something better to come. That yes, we're getting little tastes of it here. We get little samplings of it here, but we're clinging to that promise of being heirs. That's how I think one of the things that, that gives us hope and helps us make it through the day. My wife and I, uh, this last week, we uh, uh, noticed that we've, uh, hey, we'll just shoot straight, have gained a little bit of weight in California. And so we were, uh, th- this workshop that we were doing, we were trying to say, like, we want to be a little bit more uh, wise with our eating. And so we took a week where we were going to just cut back and go carb-free. Anybody else done this before? It's miserable. Carbs are so good. And, uh, <laughs> 
And, and so we're like cutting back on carbs. And we said to ourselves, we said, you know what? We're going to make it through this week because at the end of the week, we're going to go to Hugo's. Have you guys ever been to Hugo's? It's one of my favorite places around here. And we're going to have their almond energy pancakes. Fantastic. I've been recently introduced to those, and now I've been, I've been back multiple times to enjoy. And, and, so, and so we said to ourselves, Adrian had never tried them before. I said, honey, if we can like go strong this week, if we can just hold in there, like stay the line, hold tight, like at the end of the week, you've got the almond energy pancakes. Now I've just boosted their business 75%. And, uh, and, and, and so th- this idea... Finally, Friday, Friday comes. Adrian, I was like, honey, do you want to go to a later brunch? She's like, no, we're going like first thing. We had been good all, all week and uh, maybe dropped a half a pound. Isn't that frustrating? And, um, and, uh, and we show up, we get the, I mean, we're just, we're, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of talking on that date Friday morning. It was just like, ah, two hands. I don't think I used silverware. No, just kidding. But, uh, but this idea, this idea of, of this on a very small scale. That's a little bit of the picture here of what we're, we're waiting for. Like we're putting up with the no carbs right now. We're, we're, we're dealing with the, all that life is thrown at us. And it comes with a lot of junk, right? It's very, it can be seasons that you're like, man, I have no idea how I'm even going to make it through this. But the thing that we cling to is the same thing that they've been clinging to for generations and generations through Jesus Christ, being clothed in him. That's how we're staying the course. But the thing that we're staying the course towards is this promise. This promise, as as a theologian described, as eternal destiny in God's great universe. Eternal destiny in God's great universe. That's what we're, we're clinging to, that hope. That's what we're holding on to. So my question, just as we conclude, is that similar to how we started. Whose promises are you clinging to? What, apart from Christ and the hope that he offers, what is this world? Like, really stop and think about it. What promise does this world have to give to us? What promises? And do people even keep promises? We already established they don't. Like, so what promises apart from Christ are you clinging to? Are they worthy of putting your trust and hope in? God's proven his track record. Like, his character has been consistent from start to finish in this book. I'm putting my trust. I don't know about you. I'm putting my my hope in his promises alone. Let me pray. God, we thank you so much for this text and your word and just uh, the, the beauty of the seriousness that you take your word and your promises to us. I pray that that would give us hope, even through the most trying times, that we're clinging to you solely, not anything that we can do, not on a, on, a, on, on a law that we've already established that we can't keep, that we are set up to fail, that it was only going to imprison us. God, I just pray that, that we're, when we're going through our week, our days, that it's us clothed in you. We become one. You can't even tell the difference between us and you. What an awesome image that is, clothed fully in you. I pray that we'd live in that reality. We wouldn't start taking off layers and going back to living in our, our own self, that we'd live in the reality of you guiding us, our, our true identity. We thank you again for your word that it didn't leave us floundering. It gave direction and purpose to our life. We praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. 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 One of the things you'll notice is the theme in this book is kind of coming to the same conclusion every week that 
we can't do it, we're putting our hope solely in him. Like that's where we're, where we're placing our bet. Like we're saying it's all about him and his promises. Let's live in that this week. If we can be praying for you, feel free. We have elders and leaders available here in the front. Otherwise, have a fantastic week in the Lord. God bless you.